0: Well, it is great to see you uh, this morning. My name is Caleb, one of the pastors here at the Grove, uh, and we are continuing through our study of the Book of Lamentations, and we get now to Lamentations chapter three, which is the the center point of this book, and we really get to the theological center of this book uh, in verses twenty-one through thirty-three. Well, this is where we spend most of our time uh, here this morning. Uh, Lamentations is again helpful for us to see not only. Uh, Some of the seriousness of our sin, as we we see in the context of Lamentations, was the people of Israel who had rejected God for centuries, and God's judgment finally fell on Israel in 587 BC, as He then sent Babylon to go and overtake the southern tribes of Israel, Judah. Uh, They laid siege to Jerusalem, and the people were, many were killed. Uh, And the rest were taken into exile uh, there in 587 BC. So The context of Lamentations is someone of an eyewitness account watching this destruction. uh, Seeing pain and sorrow that's um, honestly incomparable for so many of us. Like he says in chapter 1, whose sorrow is like my sorrow? And it's in the midst of that pain, in the midst of then going to Babylon, in the midst of God's promises seeming to fail, All of God's promises about a people and a land and faithfulness and love have seemed to gone out the window. It's in the midst of that context, the poet writes Lamentations, these five different poems. As we've seen the first two chapters intensify uh, in this expression of pain, the poet is incredibly honest and doesn't mince words, doesn't wrap things up in a nice little bow. Uh, This pain intensifies through chapters one and two. As we see, the first two chapters each have 22 verses. It's an acrostic poem, meaning that every verse of those, uh, of those two chapters begins with a subsequent Hebrew letter. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 verses. Verse 1 begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 2, the second, 3, the third, so on and so forth. But you'll notice chapter 3 doesn't have 22 verses, it has 66 You can feel the pace quickening now. Uh, Not only is there, not just uh, the first letter is the first verse, but the first letter uh, is the first three verses. The first three verses all begin with that same letter. The next three verses, the next. That's why there's three times as many verses here in chapter three. Again, highlighting the significance of this chapter and the context of the book as a whole. The author's getting us to focus here. Now, he'll continue on in 4 and 5 and and return then to the pain that's there in the midst of everything. But it's here in Lamentations 3 that we see the center of what he's writing and trying to communicate. And in the midst of this sorrow, he's asking questions. This is what suffering and sorrow often produce. Questions. God, why are you doing this? Where are you? How long is this going to last? These are questions not only from the book of Lamentations, but throughout the Psalms and so many of our lives as well. Those questions rise up in our hearts. And friends, those are not questions to be silenced. These are questions we see in God's Word that He has not only allowed us for, but told us this is biblical to to wrestle with pain and sorrow that way. God can handle those questions, and lament is the gift that God has given us through the valley, a song to be able to sing as it leads our heart. It only expresses our hearts, but also shapes our hearts. Lament is a particularly Christian thing. It does not get us to worship. It is worship. And so we express the difficulties of the sorrow we're walking through, but then we begin to hold out then the hope that we have in who God is. And as the poet here in Lamentations is dealing with this sorrow, what is he going to reach to in that moment? What is he going to grab to try to bring some kind of hope into his heart to help trust? And what we'll see is that he's going to grab accents and notes of what is really the John three sixteen of the Old Testament, the most quoted verses in the Hebrew Old Testament. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. These are the verses where God reveals himself to Moses. It's the first time that God reveals in a condensed version who he is and what he's like. And these are the verses that we see in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. God says to Moses, Moses, this is my name. This is who I am. The Lord, the Lord. A compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. What we see here is God saying, this is who I am. I have a love that is unmatched, a compassion that is unknown before me, a, a, a patience, a faithfulness, forgiveness, and yet he is also just. So he cannot just pass sin aside. No, the, he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. So how do these things come together? Well, it's the first part of those verses in Exodus 34 that the psalmist so often grab. God, this is who you are. This is who you've told us you are. You're abounding in faithful love. You're slow to anger. You have compassion. You forgive. The author of Lamentations would know the second half of Exodus 34. He does not leave the guilty unpunished, but there are consequences to sin. The author of Lamentations is looking at the consequences of sin. Again, we saw last week God's wrath that fell on his people. He knows the justice of God. Chapter 1, he knows the Lord is just. So what does he reach to here in chapter 3? He's going to reach the first half of Exodus 34. God, is this still true of who you are? I'm experiencing the second half of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. But I'm going to believe that the first half is still true. As we look at this chapter, I want to look at four different things. First, we'll see two very different perspectives. This is the first, really the first half and the second half of the book. We'll go through this quickly because I want to spend most of our time in 21 through 33. Second, we'll see one gigantic pivot in verse 21. Then we'll see four life-changing truths in verses 22 to 24. And finally, we'll see three otherworldly responses. And verses 25 through 33. Again, I wish it was 1, 2, 3, and 4, but it's 2, 1, 4, and Um, 3. I I had a hard time with it, but it's how the text lays out. Um, So if you're OCD like me, just push through and listen to God's Word. It's so good. Um, But we'll start with 2 and not 1. So, first two very different perspectives. When you read chapter 3 as a whole, we won't read the whole thing, but when you read chapter 3 as a whole, it feels like there's almost two different authors at two different times writing it. I want you to listen to these two verses. You can hear the difference, verse 18 and verse 58. Listen to verse 18. Then I thought, my future is lost as well as my hope from the Lord. The author, in in the increasing intensification of this pain and sorrow, he gets to a point in verse 18 where he's like, I've got no more hope. It's gone. I've got no future. My hope from the Lord is gone. I've got nothing. He reaches the bottom. But then, listen to verse fifty-eight. You championed my cause, Lord. You redeemed my life. Are well, two very different perspectives. Again, just to to briefly go through it, to continue to drill this down, I'll read the first five verses in chapter 3, and you can hear, again, uh, this uh, sorrow continuing to grow. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven me away and forced me to walk in darkness instead of light. Yes, he repeatedly turns his hand against me all day long. He has worn away my flesh and skin. He has broken my bones. He has laid siege against me, encircling me with bitterness and hardship continuing to deteriorate all the way until you get to uh, verses 17 and 18, where now he's got no more peace, he has no more prosperity, again, his hope is gone, and now he just knows affliction and homelessness, and all the way down to verse 20, where these things are always in front of them. I continually remember these things and have become depressed. This is the lowest point that he gets. They are always in front of him. All hope is gone. This is the first half of this book, of this chapter. But listen to parts of the second half. Verses 38 through 41. Do not both adversity and good come from the mouth of the Most High? Why should any living person complain, any man, because of the punishment for his sins? Let's examine and probe our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let's lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. Verses 55 through 57. I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit, and you heard my plea. Do not ignore my cry for relief. But you came near whenever I called you, and you said, Do not be afraid. Verses 64 to 66. You will pay them back what they deserve, Lord. Talking about Babylon, the enemies of God's people. You will pay them back what they deserve, Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them a heart filled with anguish. May your curse be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them under your heavens. It's it's a stark contrast between the first and the second. Right at the beginning, you hear the, again, the, the place where he ends. I continually remember these things, this affliction, and have become depressed. Maybe you hear that verse and you're like, oh, I didn't know verses like this were in the Bible. But man, that's where I am. Sorrow and pain and affliction seem to be around me all the time. And I've become depressed. I've become weighed down by them. And I can't seem to get away from them. I've reached the bottom. And friend, if that's you, verse 20 is for you. It's there in the scriptures. And here's the incredible hope we'll see here in Lamentations 3 and what we see throughout the Bible. As it's there at the bottom, God meets us even there. Not only does he meet us even there, it's there that he often does his greatest work. Because he's been there. He knows what that feels like. Like Again, the name that Jesus is given, we read from Isaiah 53, is he's a man of sorrows. Your God knows. But if we see these two differences here in the first half and the second half, what changed? These two perspectives. It feels like different books. What changed? How can there be hope for God's justice to go against the wicked? How can he be so confident he can lift his heart and his hands to God? How can he say in, in hope and in worship, God, you came near to me when I called to me and you told me, don't be afraid. What changed? Well, here's what changed, verses 21 to 33. And It's there that we're going to spend the rest of our time. Because this is the the, the center of the book of Lamentations, what the author has been building up to and what he will go down from uh, here afterwards. And so here's the change. It begins in verse 21 with one gigantic pivot. One gigantic pivot, verse 21. Again, I continue to remember them and have become depressed, verse 21. And yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Three things to note about verse 21. You see that first word, yet or but. It's an important word in lament. It's that word, that conjunction, that strikes the the pivot there in the lament. Again, honestly, lament is not simply expressing our hearts, but it's also meant to then shape our hearts. It's meant to lead us then to trust and praise in God. It's not linear, there's not these steps that you take and you get there overnight. Depending on the situation, it may take a different time. You may take three steps up, four steps back, and five steps forward. But the purpose of lament is it's meant to lead us, to shape our hearts. And it begins with that word, yet or but. We'll see it again in chapter 4, as it marks the turn here in the lament. And what's the turn? He calls something to mind. Yet this I call to mind. Yet I call this to mind. And here's what I want you to notice. The poet here is going, I've got something around me that's telling me something about God. My circumstances are telling me something about God. It's telling me that God's forgotten me. It's telling me that God has abandoned me. It's telling me that God doesn't love me anymore, that he's changed his mind, that he went with it for a little while, but we messed up so much that he's just kind of done. He's going to go find somebody else. It's over. That's what the circumstances are telling him. But the poet goes, I'm not going to listen to the circumstances. I'm instead going to call something else to mind. And I've got to say something louder than the situation that I'm in. I'm not going to listen to myself. I'm going to speak to myself. Do you know who the most influential person in your life is? I do. It's you. You are the most influential person in your life. You know why? Because nobody talks to you more than you do. It is a constant conversation. This self-talk, this narrative, whether it's interpreting our situation and circumstances, something that we're saying about ourselves, there is always something that we are saying. And it's important within lament, what we see over and over again in lament is that the authors of these poems, of these worship songs are going in that moment, we don't sit always listening to ourselves, but we have to speak to ourselves. Psalm 42, beautiful Psalm of lament, says this verses 5 and 6, why my soul are you so dejected? Who's the psalmist talking to? Himself. My soul. Why my soul? Hey, self, you. Hey, why are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise Him, my Savior and my God. I am deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you. Oh, Psalmist in Psalm 42 goes, my soul, remember God. Remember who He is. Your tears have become food. My, my bed is soaked with tears, but yet I will call this to mind. My soul, why are you so dejected? Put your hope in God. Call this to mind. Oh friends, in sorrow and in suffering, do not sit and listen to yourself only, but call to mind what is true, and particularly what is true about who God is, as we'll see here in just a moment. This I call to mind. Tim Keller, uh, pastor in uh, New York City, who passed away in the last couple of years, wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And talking about Psalm 42, he had this to say. He said, we may hear our hearts say, it's hopeless, but we should argue back. We should say, well, that depends on what you were hoping in. Was the right thing to put was that the right thing to put so much hope in? Notice how the psalmist in Psalm 42 analyzes his own hopes. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? Notice that he admonishes himself. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. The psalmist is talking to his heart, telling it to go to God and looking to God. Of the psalmist and the poet in Lamentations 3 is pushing his heart and his head towards what he knows to be true. He's leading his heart to God, despite what he can see with his eyes. The events surrounding him tell him one thing about God, but instead of listening to that narrative, he instead calls something else to mind. He leads his heart to hope. Oh, friends, it's important that we know that. We have the ability to lead our hearts to hope with the grace of God. Because this is what is produced in him. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The truth that he remembers produces something in him. My friends, hope springs from truth embraced. Hope springs, grows, begins to sprout from truth embraced. This important word here, this word, yet this I call to mind, it's not simply just knowledge. This is the Hebrew word for the center of the person's being, our heart, our soul, our mind, the center of who we are. We've got to bring the truth of who we are, of who God is, to the deepest parts of who we are. We've got to embrace that truth. One of the problems I I see with myself, or so many that maybe grew up in the church, or in the evangelical church, is we think that simple knowledge or repetition of truth changes things. Simply knowing the right things doesn't change anything. Just ask the Pharisees. They knew all sorts of scriptures, but they didn't embrace that. And they twisted it and didn't see the truth of who God was. We can't simply know true things, but it's got to get down into the center of who we are, into the core of our being, the nature of God and His promises embraced by us. We have to know the truth, then we have to remember the truth, and then we need to embrace that truth. Is God good and true and beautiful? It's that that produces hope. Yet this I call to mind. Here's the pivot in the text. And then we get that colon right there after hope in verse 21. What's the thing that he calls to mind? He calls to mind these four life-changing truths in verses 22 through 24. And if you're not familiar with Lamentations, these these are probably the only verses that you've heard growing up. These are some of those verses, some of the most popular ones that we... We uh, see in the Bible they're quoted often. Maybe you know it from the hymn Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's based out of this section here in these three verses. And here in these three verses we see four life-changing truths. Look at verses 22 through 24. This is what the poet calls to mind. Because of the Lord's faithful love we do not perish. For His mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in Him. I saw one person a couple weeks ago had verse 23 on their shirt. They had a shirt printed and across the front was verse 23 and it was flowers and beautiful like script writing. And I was like, there was no flowers in Lamentations 3. We are wonderful at pulling verses out of context. We have a particular gift in it. Jeremiah probably wrote the book of Lamentations. He also gets pulled out of context in Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. That was, that was Jeremiah writing to these people before exile. You know what God's plan was? To send Babylon, to destroy those uh, who had wandered away from him. But God was saying, even in the midst of exile, there's still a plan I have for you. I will keep you. I will still remember these true things of what I am. We can't just rip that out and put it on a coffee mug. We don't understand that context. It's the same here in these three verses. These three verses, when I sing, great is thy faithfulness, I always would sing of the good things that God had done and praising Him for the goodness of, of His grace and mercy towards me today. It's a very positive and a commemorative song. And it's true, but the context of 22 through 24 was not that. 22 through 24 was a poet looking at destruction, looking at a people who had been led to exile, looking at friends of his who are now dead. The temple destroyed. God promises seems to come undone, and it's there that he goes, No, 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 I've got to know this. Oh, I've got to call this to mind. God said this is who he is. Let me reach back to Exodus 34. God, you have a faithful love, and we won't perish because of it. Your mercies are never going to end. Your faithfulness is great, and you are my portion. I'm going to hold on to that because everything around me is saying otherwise. It changes the way. I'll never sing that song the same again. And the four life-changing truths that we see in these four verses, if you've been at church at all, you've heard all of these. It's not, so you, you can go ahead, if you've got your pen and paper, like, it's going to be brand new things I've never heard before. Oh, that ain't going to happen. But friends, this is the Christian, this is the Christian way. This is the Christian life. Often, the truths that we need the most are the ones that we've heard the most. We just become so familiar with it. It becomes something that we be, may become unimpressed with or becomes apathetic towards. Now, these are the four life-changing truths that we see here in these three verses. First, this incredible truth, God's love will never leave. You see that in verse 22. Because of the Lord's faithful love, steadfast love, loyal love, loving kindness. These are all ways that the English translations have tried to translate this word it's the word has said. It's one of the most important words in the Bible. It says God's relationship to his people. It's a faithful love. It is a covenant love. It is a loyal love, a steadfast love. It's a love that never leaves. A love that says, I am here and I'm not going anywhere. It's the word that describes that love. Oh friend, what word would you choose to best describe love? How would you describe it? What's an adjective that you would pick? You don't have to say it out loud. It's interesting to me that in the scriptures, as God inspires these writers... The one that he chooses is this word, faithful, loyal, steadfast. Of course, there's all sorts of other aspects of God's love, but it's, this is the one that's often connected. It's a faithful love, a never-going-anywhere kind of love, a love that says, I'm here, and I'm committed. It's a said a loving kindness. We know this to be true when we see it. I saw it a few years ago in my grandparents' They're now both with the Lord. But towards the end of their lives, my grandmother began to struggle with dementia. It's one thing to lose someone you love. It's another thing to lose them when they're still here. And I know there's many of you that have walked through or even walking through a season like that. Every grief is different. There's a particular difficulty with seeing a loved one walk through this. There'd be times where my grandmother and my grandfather were married over 50 years. She would look at him and not recognize him. You know what my grandfather did? He never left. Not only did he never leave, he stayed by her side, and every night he would read Hebrews 13 to her, over and over and over again. He was steadfast and faithful. A love where he wasn't really getting anything in return in those moments, but his love to her wasn't one that was conditional. It wasn't a love that said, I will stay here as long as you continue to do some things for me. His love said, no, I vowed and committed to stay here by you. In the good times and in bad, for richer and poorer, for sickness and in health, I'm here. And I'm not going anywhere. This is God's love to us. A committed love. A steadfast love. A love that will never leave and a love that will never let you go. So even when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. His love is committed. The second we see not only is God's love will never leave, but God's mercy will never end. Verses 22 and 23. His mercies never end. They are new every morning. You see the two aspects of his mercy, two qualities of his mercy described here. Mercy never runs out and mercy never repeats. His mercy never runs out and His mercy never repeats. It never ends. You will never reach the end of God's mercy. So here's what that means. That means is again, think about what the poet is saying here is he looks out destruction of Jerusalem because of their sin against God, because of centuries of unfaithfulness and rebellion, the poet is still able to look out and go, no, I know God's character. I know His mercy. And while this sin may be great, His mercy is greater still because there is no end to His mercy. There is no bound to His mercy. Oh, and friend, what an incredible hope for all of us, Christian, non-Christian, as we walk through this life, we will all turn our back to God. And you may have the temptation to believe, I have done too much for God to forgive me. He won't accept me. He won't forgive me. He won't, the, the, the rope has run out. Oh, friends, you've got to come back to this promise here, that His mercies never end. He doesn't run out. I used to work in the uh, restaurant business number of different capacities, Sonic, America's favorite drive-in, <laughs> Paradiso 37 on um, in Disney Springs, Eddie V's over on Sand Lake. And whenever in the restaurant industry, whenever we'd be going through the night, we'd get hit with a lot of business, we'd run out of ingredients, and it's called 86. We had 86 lettuce, 86 the dough, 86 salsa. I don't know where the number comes from, but it's just 86. I mean, we have run out. And I don't know, I feel like anytime I go to Chipotle, they're always out of some ingredient that I desperately want in that moment. I don't understand why. It's like, just, just maybe prepare. I don't know. Anyway, if you work at Chipotle, I'm sorry. We can talk later. I don't know what it is. But here's here's the truth, friends, of God's mercy. He never 86s of his mercy. He never runs out. It doesn't matter what the demand is. The supply is always more. Oh, his mercies never end. And they never repeat. They are new every morning. That's true for the poet and for the people of Israel being led into exile in Babylon. The poet is saying, there is mercy for you in Babylon. They will be new every morning. Oh, it shows us a couple things. One, what an incredible abundance of who God is. You see, it's like this fountain of mercy that's just overflowing and it never ends. It's able to meet us every single day. And give us the mercy that we need for today. There is no challenge. There is no sorrow. There is no moment. There is no sin in which God's mercy is not given to us new for that day to make it through the end of the day. They are new every morning. You think of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. They didn't have food as they were walking through the wilderness. God gave them what? He gave them this stuff called manna. It right? literally means what is it? They didn't know what it was. Like What is this? Like We'll call it that. It's manna. And as they went and got this bread, they'd go and they'd make it and it'd give them food, but they couldn't keep it. Couldn't keep it overnight. They kept it overnight. They woke up the next day and it smelled awful, rotten, gross. But God provided manna for them the next day and the next day and the next day. Showing them that he will always be there to provide for them what they need for the day. I think part of that daily rhythm, God is getting us to lean into Him to show us that we need to trust Him and that we can trust Him. He will provide these mercies every morning. Now friends, part of the difficulty that I often feel, I don't know if you feel this way as well, I will sometimes try to face today's problems with yesterday's mercies. I'll try to store them up. Man, it was a good day at church. Lamentations 3, a lot of good stuff. Lamentations 2, a little bit harder, but it was still good. Lamentations 3, this is the good stuff, man. This is, let me hold on to this. This will get me through the next month. Friends, this will get you through today. We cannot store it up. But tomorrow, there'll be mercies for you then. And the next day, there'll be mercies for you then. Paul writes this way in 2 Corinthians 4, talking about Suffering verse 16 he says therefore we do not give up even though our outer person is being destroyed our physical bodies are wasting away hearing is going it's harder to hear our sight like you look like one big glob right now of people our sight disappearing it's harder to get out of bed I, I, I wake up and I cough wrong. I can't get out of bed the next day. Like This is what's beginning to happen. Our bodies are wasting away. But Paul says this. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. By what? By these mercies that are new every morning, day by day. Oh, friends, God's mercy will never end. So it doesn't matter. There's, there may be something in you or it may be the enemy whispering in your ear, oh, no, man, you can't, you can't come to this church. You can't come to God. You've got too much stuff. It's been decades, a lifetime of rebellion against him. What's he going to think of you? Oh, I'll tell you exactly what he'll think. He'll welcome you with open arms because his mercy never ends. Third truth is that God's faithfulness will never fail. You see this in verse 23. They're new every morning. Great is your mercy. Faithfulness. It's one thing to be convinced of how God thinks of you. He loves me. He really loves me. Yes, okay, God, I'm, God loves me. It's one thing to be convinced of what He thinks of you. It's another thing to be convinced whether or not He's going to change His mind. Well, he loves me today. Oh man, what about next year? What about five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Maybe I begin to doubt or again go through a period where I turn my back on him. Oh, how many is he going to change his mind? Oh, friends, this is why often in the Psalms, God's love and God's faithfulness are paired together. It was interesting. I was looking through faithfulness in the Old Testament and I saw over and over and over again the psalmist would link these two things God's love and God's faithfulness. I need to know how God thinks about me and I need to know that He'll never change His mind. These two things are linked together. It's so important the psalmist sees this. You see the exclamation point here. In the midst of destruction, he goes, God, you have said that you have a a faithful love. You're slow to anger. You're compassionate. You forgive. And so I will call that to mind and I will say that you're faithful, that who you were to Moses in Exodus 34, it is who you are right now. I can't make sense of it But I know and can say and can call this to mind. Great is your faithfulness. As high as the heavens reach, so high is your faithfulness. You will never change. Psalm 92, the psalmist puts it this way in verses 1 and 2. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name most high. And to do what? To declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Or to keep these things at the forefront of our minds. God never changes. He always comes through. He loves to make promises to his people and he always keeps his promises. They become a bedrock for us in times of sorrow and part of what we need to call to mind. I think that's why Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 4, describes the promises this way, that he has given us very great and precious promises. Oh, how precious are the promises that he's given us. And we cling to them and we call them to mind going God this is what you've said to be true about you and even though I can't make sense of it I'll call this to mind that you never change great is thy faithfulness O God my father there is no shadow of turning with thee thou changest not thy compassions they fail not as thou has been thou forever will be great is thy faithfulness Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. We need to remember and call this to mind. God's faithfulness will never fail. Fourth truth in verse 24 is that God himself will always be enough. See this in verse 24 I say, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my inheritance. God is the treasure. He is enough. Oh, He is love. He is mercy. He is faithful. And He is sufficient. He is enough. God Himself will always be enough because He is the portion. He is the treasure. We say this all the time around here because it's easy to get it mixed up. There's there's strains of people that call themselves Christians that will teach a version of this, a Christianity, but it's not at all biblical, called the prosperity gospel, that holds out. If you believe in God, then He will heal you. He will give you money. He'll give, make you happy. It'll, it'll all be wonderful. Just believe. And if bad things are happening in your life, it's because you just aren't believing enough. That's the problem. You don't have enough faith. You got to believe harder, and then He'll give you everything that you want. Well, friends, what that does, it makes Jesus a butler that gives us what it it is that we really want, which isn't him, it's stuff. We want the gift, not the giver. Friends, what we see throughout the Bible, Psalm 84, we see it in Philippians 3, the gift of Christianity is God himself. And we have to be careful, because even even if you love the Bible, we can begin to look at heaven and begin to think the greatest things about heaven, that there'll be streets of gold, which is going to be super cool. Don't, Don't get me wrong. It'll be awesome walking on the streets of gold. It'll be incredible that our tears are wiped away, that death is no more, that pain is gone, that death is dead. What an incredible promise. But friends, the greatest thing about heaven is that God will be there. He's the treasure. He is the gift. He is our portion. He's the inheritance. He is the one that has uh, given us our deepest, deepest longings of our soul. And then we cry out to him, Lord, you are my portion. You will always be enough. And you know when that is seen most clearly and magnified most beautifully? It's in moments whenever we've lost everything else. That through tears and sorrow, we say, God, I don't know what's happening. And I can't wait for you to return, but I can still say, Oh, that you are enough. Lord, your grace is sufficient. And so I can boast in my weaknesses and my hardships, because when I'm weak, then you're strong. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Your grace is enough. God, you are enough. You're the treasure. David in Psalm 84 wants one day in the courts. Because he wants one day just to be close to him. One day with there is better than a thousand elsewhere. That's the treasure. Paul says in Philippians 3, he counts everything else as lost because the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Friends, that's the treasure, to know Jesus and to be known by him. To be loved by him. Is that valuable to you? Is that the treasure of your faith? God himself, is he your portion? Or is God almost kind of like this divine butler to come and give you, oh, whenever times are hard, you'll go to him as an accessory into your life. Oh, friends, or is he your portion? Is he your inheritance? Because what's incredible about that truth Again, is that no matter what it is you walk through in this life, that truth will never be untrue. No matter what value you walk through, no matter what suffering you walk through, God will never leave you. He will always be there with you. And He will always be for you. That portion, that inheritance, cannot be negated. It cannot be diminished. It is imperishable. It is unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you. And it is always true. So you think about Psalm 23. There are green pastures, there's quiet waters, there's right paths, and then there's valleys of death. There's the darkest valleys. The circumstances change, but the shepherd never leaves. And so then, it doesn't matter. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. My inheritance and my portion is still here. So no matter what it is I'm walking through, I know that you're walking right beside me. Whatever fire, whatever flood, God, you're here with me. And because you are with me, my good shepherd, then I have all that I need. That's how Psalm 23 starts. You are the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I don't need anything. I have all that I need because I have you. You are the inheritance. You are my treasure. These are the four truths. That God has given us to call to mind. That God still loves me. That his mercies are still available for me today. That he always keeps his promises and that he will always be enough. And oh, friends, may that settle itself down deep into our heart. And not just be a theological truth we recall. But you notice how they're also all relational. God's relationship with us. That we would know that. And my, one of my friends says that we would know it in our knower. In the center of our being, that we would call it to our mind these four truths. because those four truths produce something in the poet. Three, they produce three otherworldly responses. We see in verses 25 through 33. First response that these truths produce produce the fact that we can wait. We can wait. I talk about an otherworldly response. We don't like to wait. Our whole culture, like, our whole capitalistic society is bent on the fact that we hate waiting, it seems like. You want food faster? Well, here's a whole genre of food called fast food. That it takes too long to cook, here's a microwave. I, I, I mean, like, for 20, years, for 20 years of my life, way longer than it um, should have been allowable, I thought the light in the microwave was what heated the food. I had no idea. It's not that at all. Maybe some of you are today years old whenever you found that out. It's not the light. We want it fast. We want it now. You think of every new phone, every new product, what's part of the marketing strategy? This is faster. It's quicker. We want it now. But these truths about who God is produce in us then the ability to wait. Listen to verses 25 to 27. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the person who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is still young. Oh, we hate to wait. Oh, but friends, it is so good for our souls. Because it's there in that waiting that God often does his greatest work. To wait, we hate it. But here's what we need to know. Waiting is never a waste. Ever. Waiting is never a waste. It's instructed throughout the psalm, Psalm 130, 5 through 6. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in His word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Remember, to wait is a, an active decision to place our trust, hope, and confidence in God. And to say, I'm going to stop trying to control this myself. Let me sit and stop trying to, let me take the hands off of the steering wheel. And let me trust it to you. And I place my confidence in you. Your timing. And I put my hope in you. We hate to wait. It feels like we're doing nothing. I like to get things done. I don't know if you're anything like, I like to get things done. I like a to-do list. I like to be able to check it off. It's nice. No, friends, it feels like we're doing nothing and waiting, but you're actually doing one of the greatest things a Christian can do. Actively placing your confidence in God. And it's there often that God does his greatest work. We can respond by waiting. Second, we can also hope. We can hope. Verses 28 through 30, you're going to hear the situation continuing to regress. Let him sit alone and be silent for God has disciplined him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is still hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace. What the poet is saying here. Is in these situations, again, where it seems like it's saying one thing. Alone, silence, laying in the dust, active um, abuse from uh, an aggressor. that in all of those moments, perhaps there is still hope. What the poet is getting at is our hope cannot be placed in what is around us. Not in our circumstances. Christian hope is placed in who is beside us. Locating our hope in Him. my Friends, there are things all in our lives that are trying to get you to hope in it. This is part of what temptation looks like. It's saying, hey, put your hope in me. I can give you the things that you want. I can get you out of this situation. Small things, big things, all around us clamoring for our hope. This is one of, the, one of the, I think, strongest tools of politics, is to say, if you will just do this, then we can give you what it is that you want. Put your hope in me. That doesn't mean we just pull back and that we're uninvolved in a year like this. Again, I bet it's going to be really great this year, but there's going to be no issues. It <laughs> doesn't mean we just pull back or uninvolved. Friends, What you got to see as a Christian, we we don't put our hope in a president or in a judge or in a senator. We put our hope in a king. That doesn't mean we don't care, but it means it changes how we engage. It changes how we are involved. That we go, my hope is not in my circumstance, it's in my king who has overcome my circumstances. I place and attach my hope to him so that even as my life may be falling apart, there is still hope. Because my hope has a name. And it's a living hope. A weakened hope. Even when it seems like all hope is gone. The third response is that we can trust. Verses 31 through 33. For the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to the abundance of his faithful love. For he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. Think about what it takes to trust somebody. I was thinking about this with my kids. One of my kids has a really hard time anytime that any level of pain is involved. It doesn't matter if it's a splinter or a surgery or a bruise. Or it doesn't matter. Anything, it feels like we're amputating a leg is what it feels like. It's all ratcheted up. A couple of months ago, we were at a park and he got a splinter and we saw the splinter in his hand. And get to the car, get to the van and I was like, oh, well, hey, let me just pull it out real quick. Buddy, let me, let me just get right there. Let me pull it out. And I mean, for 15 minutes, again, you thought we would have had to, we were performing surgery right there on the side of the van. There's screaming and tears. If you were at the park that day, just know it was just a splinter. That's all that was happening. So I want to make sure you know. When I'm trying to communicate to him to try to build trust in me, I'm trying to tell him, hey, listen, two things. You can trust me. He's not listening to me, but I'm still trying to tell him. You can trust me. You can trust me. Why? Because, listen, you can trust me because I have the ability to do something about this situation. That's not the only thing. I also have your best interest at heart. I have the ability to do something about the situation and I have your best interest at heart. Those two things build trust, hopefully over time, to be able to take splinters out. We'll see. But that's what the poet is saying here. We can trust God because he has the ability to change our situation and he has our best interest at heart. Looking at 31 and 32. The Lord will not reject us forever. Even if He causes suffering, He will show compassion according to the abundance of His faithful love. God will not allow His people to stay in this situation forever. Our suffering has a limit to it. Our sorrow has bounds to it. Every ounce of suffering in this world has an expiration date on it. Because God has the ability to do something about it, and friends, He will. He will come again, and our suffering, our sorrow will end. If not in this life, when He returns, He can do something about it. But that's not our only ability to be able to trust in Him. But we can also trust because He has our best interests at heart. Verse thirty-three: God does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. Friends, God is not only powerful and mighty; He is also good. Even in the whole book of Lamentations, as we see God's judgment poured out on Israel, he's not in heaven enjoying what's happening. He's not going, oh, this is so wonderful. I love this. It's so my, my Part of my justice is able to be expressed. He does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. Oh, friends, he's a good God. He is so much better than us. How all this plays out, again, is beyond my understanding. But these are the things that the poet brings to mind. Oh, God, you can do something about this. You're good. I'll continue to hope in you. So this is what the poet brings, again, reaches for in the midst of his suffering and in his sorrow. These truths to his mind, these responses that are produced in him. Reaching back to Exodus 34 going, God, I feel your justice and I'm going to bring to mind, God, the, the truth that you are who you said you are. Clinging to the promise. Oh, friend, for you, if you're a Christian, if you follow and trust in Jesus, you don't have to cling to a promise hoping that it may or may not be true, even if you can't see it. We don't have a promise of Exodus 34 alone. We have that promise personified. We have that promise who has taken on flesh and walked with us. We have that promise nailed to a tree in our place. And so we don't go back to Exodus 34, we go back to the cross. We go back to that hill in Jerusalem where God's cloud of wrath fell once again on the hills of Jerusalem, but it fell on the Son of God in our place. And we go back to that cross and there on that piece of wood, we see God's love and we see God's justice, not at odds with one another, but totally embracing one another. That God does not leave the guilty unpunished. As we saw last week, Jesus took the curse in our place. Our sin was punished on Him. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But we see God's love displayed for us there. How much does God love you? He loves you enough that God Himself died for you. He stood in your place. To offer you the life that you could never have. Because we've all rebelled against Him. But God said, no, I'm not going to leave you there. But my love will be shown for you by this. That I would die for my enemies. That's His love expressed to us. And we see on the cross His love and His justice. Sorrow and love mingled together. See from His head, His hands, His feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Oh, did air such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Oh, friends, the cross is the visible picture of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Jesus is not a different kind of God than the Old Testament God. He is the expression of God. He is the visible picture of who God is. God hasn't changed from beginning to end. And we look to him. And friends, that cross still speaks today it still says something to us today. And so as we walk through sorrow and suffering in this world, we walk through the brokenness of this world, maybe you experience judgment or discipline, consequences of your sin. What will you call to mind? Friend, call to mind the mercies of Calvary. Call to mind the picture of Jesus there in your place. Call to mind His love and His grace and His mercy displayed for you. Call to mind that He is still the God who's speaking and saying, I am still for you. I am still with you. That there is nothing in this life that can separate you from me. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, whenever he finally reaches the the climax of that great chapter in Romans 8. What does he go through? All those rhetorical questions. Talking about this incredible gift of God on the cross. He says, what then are we to say about these things? What things? The mercy of God displayed on the cross. What are we to say about them? What's this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him grant us everything? As we walk through sorrow and suffering, we go back to the cross and we go, this world, my situation, my circumstance is telling me one thing, but your cross is telling me something different. Oh, and so I will call it to mind. I will bring it to the forefront of my my mind and be able to say then, well, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Because God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? No, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. And he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? That's the foundation for Paul, just like it was the foundation for the poet Lamentations. It was the faithful love of God that was the bedrock of his hope. Mercy and faithfulness and hope sprung forth, but it was His love that was the foundation. And for Paul, this is what he comes back to. No, there is nothing. Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded neither height nor death, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that is the thing to call to mind. We call to mind His cross and we see God's love for you. We can't make sense of all of it. One day we'll get to eternity, we'll get to glory It'll make sense. But right now, we don't can't make sense of all of it. What does make sense? What do we cling to? What do we bring to mind? Oh, the character and the nature of who God is, and His love for you that will never leave and that will never fail. Let's pray.